0: Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, we welcome back Colleen Rowley. She is a retired FBI agent and former Minneapolis Division legal counsel who testified about the FBI's pre-9-11 lapses as a whistleblower in 2002 to staffers of the Joint Intelligence Committee's Inquiry, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and to investigators of the Inspector General of the Department of Justice, along with two other whistleblowers she was selected that year as Time Magazine's Persons of the Year. Colleen Rowley has been a terrific activist and advocate for peace and justice ever since then. Colleen, welcome back to Talk Nation Radio.
1: Yes, thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for coming on. I wanted to catch up with you and get your take on a number of topics. Uh, One is Danny Sherson's new book, Patriotic Dissent, America in the Age of Endless War. What is your take on that?
1: Well, I find that the fact that uh, Danny, along with other veterans, I mean, we've always had the veterans for peace, but they kind of go back to uh, the Vietnam War, more or less. I mean, there's been a few Iraq veterans, But I think it's a glimmer of hope that he is such a strong voice right now about how uh, terrible the situation is where we've been waging war for, you know, 19 years. And it's a perpetual war. It's, you know, obviously counterproductive from all angles. Uh, I, I voiced this way back in 2003, right on the eve of the Iraq War, as mothers did. And yet, it's been all these years, and uh, we have not had any reflection—hardly any reflection. So, his book uh, entitled "Patriotic Descent: uh, America in the Age of Endless War." It's a very short, about 140 pages, very readable, and it's—you know—it's a book about his personal story of, of being a U.S. Army officer and West Point historian. Ah, uh, graduate of West Point, and then ends up teaching history there. Who eventually, you know, not not eventually, but pretty quickly realizes that you know he's he's in these terrible situations in Afghanistan and Iraq, and he goes along with it for a while for different reasons. But it's a it's an excellent uh, book about that, and it draws in history of how veterans, you know, obviously many people know about Smedley Butler, but there are others throughout history that have voiced their uh, their dissent and misgivings about this. And I find that that's a bit of a glimmer of hope just because, you know, after all these years now, we do see ourselves in a very different situation from Vietnam, where people were uh, experiencing direct costs of war because of the draft, and in other wars there have been taxes to pay for the war and in most other wars frankly there have been us casualties and so the combination of no very few if uh, other than suicides no us casualties no no taxes no raising of taxes to pay for the war and no draft means that the, the majority of americans this is Simply an afterthought. And uh, obviously with the presidential elections, you hardly see it even raised. The, the imperialist and the militarism and the imperialism, uh, we're now seeing the militarism raised just to a tiny extent with the Black Lives Matter, but we're not really seeing that applied to foreign policy abroad. So I found that the, this book is, is really good on that level. Um, and I I hope it does get wider readership, and I hope more veterans uh, chime in because uh, we need more of these voices that will uh, tell the truth about it and make the average American. You know, it's kind of sad now. Our our average Americans are almost like the the old average good German that they are not understanding what their what their leaders are doing, and we're at a dangerous. Of course, even the most dangerous after all these years of war on countries that really had no military and couldn't fight back. That's why we have very little American casualties. And now the hubris is so bad in the United States that they're, and in the insanity that they're facing off against China and Russia that have nuclear weapons. And they play their, their, their ridiculously insane war games and come down to the point of pressing buttons on nuclear war, first strike nuclear war. You can't get a, more of a Titanic, uh, you know, you know I, often now I watched that movie again the other day of being the passenger on the Titanic after it hit the iceberg, and I'm, I'm sad to say that I'm kind of feeling that way these days, like, you know, what are we going to do now? You know, the, there's a hole in the ship, and it's going down, and, and there's not a whole lot we can do.
0: Well, Radical Times call for radical solutions. I, I, I'm sure The Patriotic Dissent is a, is a terrific book uh, that I haven't read, uh, but based on Danny Sherson's other writings. Uh, but I wonder if we couldn't use a little more anti-patriotic dissent, uh, a little more recognition that the other 96% of humanity, we ought to be identifying with them too, and not just with this little 4% in this Corner of the earth that that's actually uh, a part of the problem. Am I am I off track?
1: Well, that no, that is exactly right. And and frankly, that's a little bit of my complaint. And I think a little bit of, along the lines of uh, even some of the writers on Black Agenda Report <clears throat> that the 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 concentration in the United States on domestic issues. So even the, uh, you know, police brutality, for instance, people care about that in the United States. And the reason they care about it is because it's affecting them domestically. But as you said, here we are, the 4%, and those 96% of of the people in foreign countries uh, don't make it to our news. They are, the civilian casualties are never mentioned, and, you know, they're always, it's always glossed over. And I'm told... Ah, uh, Danny. Danny's book, by the way, does a good job on that level. His book uh, is called. The title is "Patriotic Dissent," but he actually does talk about the fact that we, you know, we're killing children. You know, Madeline Albright's little flippant remark about, "Well, it's worth it to kill a half a million children as long as they're in Iraq." You know, it's it's worth it from our standpoint. So uh, he does a good job of actually bringing in, because you know why? He was there and he saw it, and he saw all this horrible stuff that went on. So I think that's exactly right that you know in, in theory, it, it's difficult for people. Um, you know you can <laughs> we can debate human nature, but I think the human mind is just focused on things that are closest to them, their own families, their own situation, and it is difficult. To understand what's going on in foreign countries, and we are we are very vulnerable to manipulations from uh, our so-called politicians and leaders who tell us that the Chinese are evil hackers and the and the Russians are out to uh, to take over Europe and all this stuff. It's very easy to fall into that because you know there's no way of knowing. We, we don't have that many cosmopolitan people, especially now when when Americans are not even allowed to travel to to most places on the earth. So we've always been that kind of uh, turned on ourselves. And then this pride exceptionalism, which is unbelievable. And frankly, uh, I know you've written about exceptionalism, but it seems that it's always the common denominator in bringing empires down because it blinds not only the leaders, but it even blinds the people. To what their uh, you know what their situation is, yeah. and I, I like I said I'm pretty frustrated and disappointed about being a, thinking that you know we're on this uh, ship of Titanic, and uh, and trying to figure out there there are some glimmers of hope and one of we can't predict the future so the hope lies in the fact that anything can happen and with coronavirus and stuff you know we've seen how things can be turned over. upside down overnight, you know, situations can be turned upside down by things no one would have expected. So that's, there's some hope in that. Uh, But otherwise, if we continue on this path now after 18, 19 years, I think we really are looking at, uh, you know, I I think we've hit the iceberg and now we're just looking at this end time of of figuring out what else can can happen here. Uh, uh, I hate to be so Uh, depressing but uh i think the 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 chance of nuclear you know war and nuclear winter is pretty high it's running pretty high and pompeo i know ray mcgovern uh he he's just written uh, an article about pompeo and
0: and and just discussed it on this program as well
1: yeah and you know uh, Chaz freeman these were these people that really know the the uh the long term, you know, decades long now, foreign policies. And even they, even though they worked in a system whereby they were trying to, you know, do the best uh, for American superiority and triangulation and all the things that they were doing under Kissinger, um, this, the situation we're in now makes that look sane. I mean, that's how bad this is. <laughs> you know, it, the situation we're in now with this. This exceptionalism has just made people drunk on power. And again, like when you're when they're playing the war games, and they get to the point where you know, oh, should we use a first strike? You know, and maybe someone says, let's just not go there, and we'll end the end the thing. But that's this is like the Doctor Strange love. It's it's the Curtis Lemay during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, it's it's pretty pretty frightening, and uh, Americans don't seem to grasp these things, the, these issues, because they have concocted a recipe for, for perpetual form uh, for for war, you know, perpetual war for global dominance, whatever. They have concocted that. I will have to say, you know, they, they have done a great job of making people not care in the United States for the most part. And, you know, maybe some crack would open up. Whereby there will be some opportunity and things that we can't foresee, but right now it is not on a good, uh, we are not on a good, tra- uh, uh, whatever tra- trajectory and it's, it's very, very dangerous and it is hard to stay, uh, you know, it's hard to stay focused now with the coronavirus that is hitting everything and the, the tie into coronavirus is that, um, Cindy Sheehan, uh, formed a group on the elder, she calls it elder side, uh, because in California and New York, at least seven or eight states, we know for sure seven or eight states, uh, ordered uh, their COVID patients to be housed in nursing homes. And then, of course, you know, we're told how catchy and contagious this is, and you can't go outside without a mask, which is, you know, a little bit, you know, I don't think that that's even true, but they scare people to death about how catchy it is. And yet, at the same time, they ordered uh, COVID-positive patients into nursing homes. Minnesota, not only are we the place where uh, the police officer, you know, murdered George Floyd, but we were for a period of time, and I think maybe still, the, the state that had the highest percentage of nursing home patients. As the, as deaths. So 82% of all deaths in, in the, in Minnesota were of senior living facilities or nursing home patients. Even in New York, uh, which people criticize Cuomo for this, it was around 40%. The national average is somewhere around 40%. Minnesota was 82% of all deaths here were in nursing homes. And I think it's gone down just a percent or a couple of percent because of the prison. A couple of prisons have gotten coronavirus and packing, meat packing plants. So that's, uh, you know, proportionally lowered it just a couple of percent. But we're still in the high 70 percent, nearly 80 uh, percent, which uh, no one knows and no one seems to bring up or care about, but at least three-fourths, four-fifths of all the deaths in Minnesota are of of elderly people in in facilities. So that's an important thing, and it ties in with the fact that all the money has gone for uh, military, you know, they can't even cut the Pentagon by 10 percent. The Democrats, you know, all voted against, almost most of them voted against um, cutting the Pentagon, and the preparation for any pandemic without having masks and hospital space, etc., not having a good hospital plan and medical care for people, uh, has put us at you know at this uh, really bad, uh, has, has made the United States more vulnerable to the greater number of deaths. And now we're kind of the you know, the rest of the world is looking at the United States like, What's wrong with you? You don't even know how to handle this or anything else. And a lot of it is because of this imperialism and militarism in the United States, because that's that sucked all the oxygen out of, for, for 18, 19 years now, uh, that's what our, you know, Washington, D.C. leaders have been focused on. They have not thought, you know, given any thought at all to pandemics or or really to anything. So we end up then with all of this blowback, as Ch- uh, Chalmers Johnson wrote, you know, the, the thing has boomeranged back. And you have done a great job of writing about how the mass shooters were, you know, a large proportion of them uh, were veterans, but I think just the whole war has come home in that way. We have higher levels of violence. The police are more nervous because of mass shootings and because of, of greater increasing numbers of shootings and murders, and so you know, even before George Floyd, we had a we had a, the last two before killings, police killings of innocent people before George Floyd were simply because those police officers were scared, and they pulled over a guy, and you know they had their hands and their guns, and you know he they couldn't see his hand for a second, so they they shot him. Same thing with the the poor Australian woman who got shot. She just went up behind the police car, and he was scared, and he shot her. So we're getting, this is part of the blowback. People don't see that as blowback from war. They don't see that as a blowback or a, one of the consequences uh, that we're suffering right now, along with other things. Lots of consequences we're suffering. This isn't, uh, the costs are are invisible, you know, mostly invisible to people, but they do exist. And if we knew the cost, I think then we would have a lot more people, uh, you know, putting pressure on our politicians. But as it stands right now, the politicians feel free to vote, to come fund another, you know, another trillion dollars to the Pentagon. Biden can say, you know, that he's going to continue uh, the wars, etc. And uh, there's very little pressure on these politicians to change their ways.
0: We're speaking with Colleen Rowley, FBI whistleblower and activist and analyst extraordinaire. We we are dealing with not just uh, military veteran police like the police officer who killed George Floyd but learned how to be a police officer in the U.S. Army, uh, but also with these militarized trainings that train these police officers to be scared and to act quickly. You have people like Dave Grossman who study how soldiers in wars like World War II, the majority of them never shot at the enemy because it's not an easy thing to kill a human being, but through proper conditioning and training, you can get people to kill uh, and then take these trainings to domestic police and train the police to be eager to kill and ready to kill and willing to kill when they ought to be trained in the exact opposite sort of conditioning. Uh so uh, aren't we aren't we dealing with police that have been not just individually trained for war and 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 been part of wars but are being trained as departments uh to act as if they're in a war against the people they supposedly are somehow serving
1: yes it's a lot of the problem lies in training uh and the training has morphed and changed uh throughout the the decades at least from the time i joined in uh, 19 beginning of 1981 in fact back then there was no training about whether to even shoot someone other than a, a, a little lecture about you were only supposed to shoot, you know, be able to shoot someone if your life was in danger. So it was just a, 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 a motto. So the, when you were training in firearms, you, it was, the premise was how to hit the person in the vital area. That was the only training that existed. <laughs> There's how to hit the person in this area where you would score points. And of course, people become conditioned then. Uh, it's like the head and the torso, and that's all the training existed. So by about 19, uh, late 1990s, they started with these electronic simulations, and that was almost the first time that they even introduced whether you should, uh, w- whether it was justified to, to to try to shoot somebody. That was the first time that would even came in. And, uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the point is action beats reaction. Well, that's just kind of a scientific fact. But many of these scenarios in the electronic training things were kind of like the ticking time bomb hypothetical on torture. They were things that would never happen or would be very unlikely to happen. So, um, I don't know how much time we have, but one of the scenarios that I failed miserably at on this machine where you're looking at, like, a, uh, you know, this, this movie screen was I walk up to a bag lady, like an elderly, you know, 75, 80 year old woman in a park who's, who's a homeless person sitting in a park. And she, like, you don't see her hand for a second. If I don't shoot her within just a second or two, this lady turns out to be a, an adept knife thrower and she reaches in her bag and throws a knife that hits me in the heart. Okay, so that actua- was an actual scenario that I trained on in the late 90s, and I got, I got killed by a bag lady in a park. So, so even the more refined uh, training that they were able to do that did introduce this concept of whether you should shoot had all of these, prob- had these issues and problems. Then we go to war, we get into the perpetual war, And we have Israel, Israelis coming here to to train us. And um, by the way, the ticking time bomb hypothetical came from Alan Dershowitz, who wrote op-eds about it, but it also came from Israeli trainers. I sat in rooms where they brought that up. That, you know, if, um, if it would be fine to torture somebody, if you were getting the information where they, where you could locate the ticking time bomb and it would save, you know, half of New York City. That came out of Israel, and and so did a lot of this militaristic training and mindset that you were in a war and that the people that you were dealing with were terrorists, uh, like the Israelis consider the Palestinians to be terrorists, etc. So this, uh, this is all layered on all of the problems of training to begin with. You know, some countries, uh, I think it's Scotland, I don't even know which countries, I know I know Norway's pretty good. So you don't have nearly this percentage of shootings in a lot of other countries. So I think the differences do lie in training. A lot of it is in training. And it could be improved on, and that should be something, you know, some of the, the solutions, the so-called solutions now to the George Floyd and stuff, renaming the police department and other things, I think are more window dressing, a lot of it's a window dressing, uh, training is a big area where they could actually make some big improvements. You know, it requires people to, to think about it. You know, I, I would take that scenario out of the electronic training where the bad woman turns out to be remarkably uh, uh, an, an expert knife thrower, and if you don't shoot her right away, she kills you because that is conditioning, the the police person to shoot first, you know, and worry about other things later. Colleen, uh,
0: in a a lot of countries, the police also aren't carrying guns, which ought to make a difference as
1: well, oughtn't it? Yes. um, See, and there, there we go back to this cycle or this vicious circle of we happen, you know, we think we're so exceptional in the United States, but we have a really high level of violence. And, and, you know, this, this is the problem. It, one, one, uh, one leads to the other. So the police say, well, you know, the level of violence, you know, other police officers get shot and I have to, you know, my training, I get, you know, I train this way. So that's, that's the problem is as a country, it requires a lot of self reflection and, and none of this, so like we are this utopian country. We do have problems here, lots and lots of problems. That's why we shouldn't be trying to be, that's actually why we shouldn't be trying to be policemen of the world. You know, policing is a really bad job. It is a, just even responding to car accidents. Can you imagine? I mean, most people don't want to be a highway trooper. And, you know, because this kind of traumatizes you just to come on some of those scenes. I mean, it is a hard job and, uh, and a bad job. It's, in most, it's not for everybody. Um, and in a country like ours, with a high level of violence and whatever, it's, it's even worse. So it's, it's, we have to start somewhere. And the police violence has actually now, you can see it with the protest movements and stuff, it's just like both sides, both sides are serving to ratchet up the other. And, you know, we see that in all conflicts, you know, where one side does something and then the other side says they're, they're justified now because it's worse. But we we have to. Um, there are recommendations, and there are these recommendations for making policing more humane. And uh, half of all, fifty percent of all police shootings are of mentally ill people. So, for for very starters, uh, that's that's the first thing that has to be dealt with. People have got to have training in how to deal with standoffs where you have mentally ill people. You just can't shoot someone who's uh, you know. Acting in a threatening way because they're mentally ill. So fifty percent of all police shootings are of mentally ill people, and and they the police never have been held accountable for any of those. And they're they're not really racial um, motivations. They're just the police think okay, there's somebody holding a knife. You know, I get to shoot them. Uh, that's it's, it's just a, a, a given. Uh, we we've, we've had shootings down in my in the suburbs of of the Twin Cities of young people. You know teenagers because quote-unquote they're mentally ill and they'll be in a parking lot or something and the police will come and bam that it's you know a few seconds later somebody's dead so there is a lot of it is training and we we do need we need, need to uh, work on our societal problems our disparities our, our racial and economic disparities which are leading to this kind of a tinderbox so it's, it's complicated uh, but the the solutions to reducing police violence they're 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 out there they've been out there for for you know years now ten fifteen years I've seen some really good ones I never see them uh, used or uh, used or uh, implemented but you do see them all the time
0: yeah. Well, here we've got just a minute left. Colleen, here in Charlottesville, we got our city council to ban, you know, military weaponry and military training. Uh, and uh, it, it costs them zero dollars, very easy to do, five minutes work. I don't know that localities across the country couldn't take at least that step.
1: Yeah. And, um, so far in Minnesota, they have banned warrior. They called it warrior training. Yep. Uh, which actually has happened. You know, they people officers were going to warrior training and chokeholds. So yeah, they've started. I mean, it may be just starting to to uh, what's the word scrape the surface of what can be done. But at least there were some good measures that have been three or four things that you know made sense and they've already initiated those
0: and and even started talking about uh dismantling the whole police department right
1: yeah but that that was talk um i don't think you know again when you're trying to sell something you frame it in a way but what it really amounts to i don't think it's going to really amount to that and uh We'll have to see. that The police chief in Minneapolis, he's a, a black uh, police chief, and he was pretty good. You know, so uh, he's, you know, if you go back, you know, 10, 15 years, Minneapolis police chiefs weren't that good. There were some that weren't very good. Yeah. So it's like, you know, the, some of this is like, you always say fire somebody, and then you think, oh, it's going to improve it so much by firing that person. Well, no, yep. it's, it's a lot harder than that.
0: It, it is. Uh, it's going to take more effort, uh, but we will be following what, uh, what you're doing. Colleen Rowley is a former FBI whistleblower and a terrific activist. Colleen, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Yes.
1: Yeah. Good luck.
0: This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org.